0: Online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up between now and one o'clock, we'll chew the fat on the latest cattle market projections.
2: When we look out to 2026, we expect that Australia will produce two point 6 million tonnes of beef and that will be in line with the records that we saw in 2014.
1: And what do you know about shedding sheep? You won't find many in the state, but a stud in the north reckons ultra-whites could be a useful alternative breed when shearer shortages flare up.
3: Yeah, and when it's cool, they'll, they'll put some fleece on and when it warms up, they'll take it off. So they will lose their fleece if they're in good nick. I think if they're in Slightly less condition, they they'll tend to keep the the wool on a little bit.
1: Shedding sheep breeder Chris Badcock in about twenty minutes from now, and there's also dairy research ahead. The latest from the Elliot facility in the Northwest will head to a field day there in a tick. Larissa Smith with you. It's great to have you along this afternoon. Well, Let's start with cattle because Meat and Livestock Australia is expecting a slight reduction in the cattle herd this year, easing by less than 1% to 28.6 million head by the end of June. This is one of the key figures in MLA's latest cattle projections. And it looks at the size of the herd, the number of animals processed, carcass weights, meat production and exports for 2024 to 2026. MLA Stephen Bignall says the cattle herd has stabilised.
2: So it's been quite a good um, northern uh, wet season, which means that northern Australia, where around 50% of the herd are, will be in a really good position for for production purposes into 2024. And so that means that there's the capacity in that part of the herd, that half of the herd to maintain. And then in southern Australia, conditions, again, haven't been disastrous and, and the outlook is quite good into 2024. So any reduction in the herd in the south will just be because our capacity has sort of reached its limit.
4: What are you looking at as we look across the country in terms of the slaughter figures? What are the projections?
2: So in 2023, slaughter jumped uh, 1.2 million head. We don't have such a big jump this year. We've got slaughter uh, returning to sort of 10-year averages and and sitting at 7.9 million head. That'll be a jump of over 10% in the next uh, calendar year.
4: And do you look at just the, the cattle exports out of the country as well?
2: We look at both the livestock exports and uh, the actual total meat produced. And when we look out to 2026, we expect that Australia will produce point six million tonnes of beef, and that will be in line with the records that we saw in 2014. So as the slaughter sort of jumps up over the next three years, and and even if cattle weights sort of drop a little bit, that increase in slaughter will drive record production as we reach out to 2026.
4: All right. So that's a jump of 16% in meat production between now and 2026. Is that right? Yes. And where will that go? Can that be uh, on the domestic market or we really have to look at the export market to look at that significant increase?
2: A lot of that increase will be going to export markets. So we've got a slight growth in the domestic uh, utilisation number and that's probably just reflective of of increased population growth. And what we do see is the majority of that uplift in production will flow to export markets.
4: And do you look at specifically where... In those export markets, is it growth of the already established markets that we've got or how do you break that down?
2: That figure is aggregated exports. But what we do know that will unfold over the next uh, three years is that US drought is forecast to um, break, which means that the US herd will go into a period of rebuild like we've experienced over the last four years, and they will really... Retreat from those global export markets, which will provide an opportunity for Australian beef exporters both in the US, because the US is a big importer of meat despite being an exporter, and also the key markets that the US plays in, which is your Korea, your Japan, and the China.
4: You also had a look at the like live cattle export figures. What is that showing you, Stephen?
2: Yeah, so we've got uh, around a uh, jump in fifty thousand head of cattle exports to over seven hundred and. 20,000 next year. That puts us back in line with sort of the export figures from 2021. And as we go out to 2026, we have live exports jumping to over 800,000 weeks ahead. We have them uh, reaching 810,000 in 2026, which is sort of where they sat between 2020 and 2021.
4: And, and I guess that's the, the majority of that going to Indonesia.
2: Uh, yeah, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, Philippines... The usual markets.
4: So, you know, having a look at these figures from a cattle producer's perspective, what do you what do you really take away from what you're I, seeing in these figures?
2: I think that we do know that the supply will hit the market. So, if we talked last week about the official ABS figures and what we'd seen in 2023, we expect supply to continue to be elevated this year, and, and even as seasonal conditions sort of normalise, or, or even dampen and sort of worsen a little bit over this um, forecast period, we do expect supply to, to come online and, and for that to be processed, but that will allow our export markets to flourish. And we do have the herd coming down as, as sort of the seasonal conditions dampen over those three years.
4: And can you draw anything at all in terms of prices from these sort of figures, from a producer's so, perspective?
2: MLA don't do price forecast that's the line we always say but we do in the projections actually go out to industry analysts and we get their aggregated price forecast so these aren't mla forecasts but we get them to forecast both the feeder steer price and the heavy steer price and and what they see is they actually see an improvement in both of those indicators uh, out to 30 june they've got the feet of steer are uh, sitting at 362.8 cents per kilo uh, life weight out at 30 June, and they have the heavy steer sitting at 317.9 cents per kilo life weight at 30 June.
1: Right, so slightly up?
2: Slightly elevated.
1: On what we're seeing at the moment? Yep. Meat and Livestock Australia's Stephen Bignall going through the latest projections for the cattle herd in 2024. He was speaking to Belinda Varaschetti. And closer to one, we'll check in with livestock reporter Richard Bailey to find out what's happening with local cattle prices this week. Well, Tasmania's Peak Farm Lobby Group has delivered its election wish list to the state's political parties. Taspharma's President Ian Saw says the current policy settings are alienating food and fibre producers in the state. And the organisation wants more long-term strategic change. And these are canvassed on issues including uh, shipping access, telecommunications, land acquisitions, regulations and compensation, as well as climate change mitigation. Uh, Tas Farmers plans to release the responses to its concerns from the candidates in the coming weeks, and we'll certainly look at that in more details. Next, we're off to the northwest to find out what Meg Powell has been up to at a dairy field day.
0: Tasmania Votes 2024.
1: Climate
5: change, that's our big one. Join Leon Compton and the Mornings team on the road in the electoral seat of Braddon at Smithton as we cross the state to get a feel for what you think the issues are that will decide your vote in the state election. Child care was cheaper... The candidates, the issues and you... Start
2: doing things.
5: Come on, we need to fix it. Leon Compton on the road this Tuesday morning from 830
0: Tasmania Votes 2024. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: We're talking dairy now and our reporter Meg Powell is out and about in the northwest at a University of Tasmania research farm. It sounds like it's uh,
6: packed with farmers and researchers. Where are you Meg? Hey, Larissa, yeah, down here at Elliott at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture's Dairy Research Farm. And I've got with me here, Leslie Irvine. I've nabbed her away from the speakers. She's been running around like mad today. She is a dairy extension officer with TIA, and she has taken a bit of time to come and chat to us. Welcome to the Country Hour, Leslie. Thanks for having me.
7: Uh, how's the weather for you today? It is perfect. Um, yeah, so a little bit of a breeze, which keeps the flies away, Um bit overcast so it doesn't get too hot
6: and hope of rain later today we'll see we'll see uh how's the event been going so far you've been pretty busy i've noticed you've lost your phone a few times but things seem to be going pretty well yep despite me putting my phone down at every opportunity um yeah things are
7: going uh really well so have a great team um out here that's um, helped get everything
6: set up and um yeah the day's just um yeah going really well Michael Rose from TIA this morning gave us a pretty rousing speech about uh the importance of research in the community Leslie to you why why would you put on an event like this what what is it aimed at doing
7: yeah so we do a lot of um a lot of really good research at at the at the research farm out here and uh, and TIA more broadly and so we like to open our gates um to people so they can come along and learn about the research that we're doing and how it might help them on their farm so um the research um, is, impacts on um, or it can help farmers improve their sustainability and their profitability productivity so um, yeah that's why we like to
6: have um, people along to learn about what we're doing uh, Do you find it hard to get all of this fantastic research into the laps of just Ordinary farmers out there.
7: Um, no, I think we have the dairy industry in Tasmania. I think is pretty amazing, and so we work really closely with Dairy Tas, and we um, go out on farm and and we talk about um, research as well as a lot of other things. But I guess just having um, people come out to where the research is happening, um, it can um, bring a different different aspect to it. I suppose to when you know you might be out just talking about it, they can um, see the clover and the plantain and everything out in the paddock and see how well it's growing and and all. Of of those things so that's why it's nice to have people come here. What are the main focus topics for today? What are yeah. what are the hot topics? Yeah yeah. so we've got um, Tasmania is a really pasture-based industry and so we're doing a lot of work around pasture at the moment and um, nitrogen and looking at different levels of nitrogen in, in a farmlet study. Um, we're also going to be talking about legumes today which is um, part of our farmlet study but also some other research that um, TU that is doing um, statewide um, looking at legumes. Um, we're talking about um, some really exciting technology that's um, becoming really popular in Tasmania, which is the virtual herding technology. And so we've been working with Holter over the past um, past 12 months um, on a project with that. And then just some work on um, like benchmarking and some training um, training activities for farmers, as well as um, just um, the Tasmanian Farm Innovation Hub is here um, showcasing the um, dairy no not dairy
6: agricultural <laughs> technology guide. Great. Is, there, is there, Are there any topics that are really have piqued your interest? Are there projects that you're quite excited by? Leslie, without being too biased here, oh, it's ha- it's hard to get me to pick one. So I
7: think it's all pretty exciting. Um, I'm a person that loves um, pasture, and so I like the work that we're doing, looking at how we can um, have really efficient systems that are, are sustainable and profitable. So I think that's really important for our um, for our dairy and beef industries in, in ta- or livestock industries all altogether. Um, but it's also this virtual herding technology is pretty exciting like people keep using the word game changer all the time with um just the the um not just getting cows to be able to move around the farm without needing people there but people are are getting excited about how it can help improve their pasture management so i'm on board with that as well (laughs)
6: Lovely. How's the turnout today? It's, it's kind of hard to get dairy farmers off their farms. They're very busy people. <laughs> they are super busy people, and so it's great to see them
7: turn up to something like this and really appreciate the, the time that they take to come along and, and learn about um, the research that we're doing. Um, so we had about 100 people registered to come along today, and I haven't actually counted how many people are here, but it's, the shed's looking
6: pretty full. Anything you want to add to all that, Leslie? <laughs> no. Too open-ended. <laughs> I'll let you um, get to your burgers and whatever we're having for lunch. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Leslie. And back to you, Larissa.
1: Oh, Meg, she loves the free feeds. So I'm sure she'll enjoy that lunch. That's Meg Power reporting there from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture's Dairy Research Facility at Elliott in the North West.
0: It's the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, Tasmania has a pretty good reputation for growing fine wool, but with shearers getting harder to find, some producers are looking into breeds that shed their fleece. The Badcock family at Hagley were the first Tasmanian breeders to establish a registered ultra-white stud in the state. I spoke to Chris Badcock about developing a market for the sheep.
3: So this is a mob of ultra-white ewes, and there's a couple of lambs in there as well. But, yeah, so they're ultra-white shedding ewes, and they've been uh, here from a result of an embryo transfer program uh, we did a couple of years ago from the founding stud in Western Australia and the breed is it's a polled horse at Dorper Cross and that's been stabilised over about the last 10 to 15 years and now it's a, a registrable stud and a you know, recognised breed. What piqued your interest? Uh, look, it was probably over yeah, over a couple of years, I guess, of trying to... Yeah, like like many people, probably having some challenges with shearing and, and getting access to shearers and the cost of shearing. And I sort of felt that we were, you know, it was happening to us, so it must be happening to other people as well. And we, we felt that, you know, we probably needed to to provide something to our clients. We obviously have other, other terminal breeds as well, but we probably needed another breed that, um, you know, that could sort of fit into that mould of of easy care, low-cost production.
1: They still have their tails, is that a feature?
3: It is, yeah. Um. Our view is that we don't necessarily need the tails because there's no wool on the tails, so there's no dag or anything sticking. There is also a short tail jean, so we can actually... Our view is if we leave the tail on, we're more inclined to... Select for that um, genetic trait. If we take it off, obviously we're not going to know that whether they've got a short tail or a long tail. So by leaving that tail on, we can actually identify the the short tail gene and and you know, put a bit of selection pressure in, on that trait. And hopefully, yeah, over the next five to ten years, we'll just see shorter tails that have no need for docking at all. So and that's part of our breeding philosophy here. We are trying to to breed an animal with with high animal welfare standards.
1: Some have fleece still on them, some don't have any. So what triggers their ability to lose their fleece
3: on their own? So there's probably a couple of components. Some's obviously genetic, so some will shed better than others. That will improve as we get more numbers and we can put more selection pressure on on that trait, on that specific trait. The other aspect will be seasonal conditions. As it warms up, they're more inclined to lose more of that fleece. As it gets cooler, uh they will decide to, you know, they will put it back on a little bit. Again, it's sort of highlighting that, you know, that animal welfare standard. And then that's um yeah, you know, when it's cool they'll they'll put some fleece on and when it warms up they'll take it off. So it's um and and probably the other thing is yeah, condition. I think if they're in good healthy condition they'll they'll go through those cycles a bit more readily. So they'll they will lose their fleece if they're in good nick. I think if they're in slightly less condition, they, they'll they tend to keep the, the wool on a little bit.
1: And how do they compare to some of the other breeds going around that are, are, are similar in their, their structure and their, their carcass weights?
3: If we're comparing to the shedding breeds specifically, I guess um, the big difference with the ultra wide over some of the other shedding breeds is that these have been bred really with with significant pressure being put on structure to start with. Uh, structure and carcass, so um, really trying to yeah make sure that these animals can withstand the conditions. Particularly bringing them into Tasmania, they have been bred in in drier areas, so we've very been very conscious of bringing in the right animals with the right conformation in feet, etc. Because we have sort of heard with some other breeds that that the feet can be a bit of a uh, challenge in some of the shedding breeds. So we've been very very conscious to get that right.
1: So how do they compare to the other breeds that you run here on
3: the stud? Yeah, well, from that aspect, they're actually pretty good. So from a yeah, temperament point of view, they're great. Um, and considering they're, because they're not in the yards as much, they're not being handled as much because we're not shearing, we're not dagging, um, things like that. So considering they're not being handled anywhere near as much as the others, their temperament's fantastic as well as their mothering ability. So, yeah, we've certainly uh, identified and, and highlighted that as a as a really key positive with them look carcass wise yeah compared to the other breeds that we've got you know we have also run alongside our polled orsett and white Suffolk out there and studs but we um yeah carcass wise they're pretty pretty close and um but being only a fairly new breed we you know there's there's still some things we're going to need to work on and improve but yeah early signs are that they're yeah, very comparable.
1: So going forward, uh, what's the long-term plan? Where do you want to get your numbers to?
3: Our, our aim was to really get up to that sort of 50 or 60 ewes as quick as we could, and that just gives us the opportunity to probably use two or three rams in the breeding program and, and try to get up to sort of that 20 or 30 rams as quick as we can, just to give us the ability to put some, you know, selection pressure on certain traits. Uh, at the moment, of course, we've only just started and, and we've got smaller numbers it's um the, the culling's a little bit harder because we just haven't got the, the luxury of numbers at the moment so we really want to get up to you know a point where we can um you know, start culling and start you know really just putting some selection pressure on the certain traits that we're trying to achieve that will happen quite rarely because they're quite fertile we can actually achieve three lambings in two years so we'll actually start to get a lot of numbers on the ground next season so that that process will probably start as early as next year where we can start to yeah sort of really put selection pressure on on the traits that we want ultimately yeah, we will just have to grow with the market and see where that where it ends but i think you know there's a lot of interest in in trying to lower cost of production because you know shearing is becoming an issue just with the cost of it so yeah we're just trying to provide an alternative to some clients and you know to try and lower their cost of production and I guess we were seeing a bit of a a transition with some of our clients where they were probably exiting the industry and going into cattle or something because it was hard, you know, smaller holdings, smaller, smaller sheep producers, it was hard for them to get shearers and people to come and work on their sheep. So they were just probably exiting the industry, which we obviously don't want to see that. So, again, that was probably what got our interest a little bit into providing them with an option that can keep them keep them in the industry. Chris
1: Badcock talking about uh, ultra-white shedding sheep at the family's Fairbanks stud at Hagley in the States North. On the text line, Jim says he's a farmer and an equine vet and a previous owner and breeder of self-shedding sheep. He says it's mostly an illusion for Tasmanian conditions. So thanks for that. 0438 922 936 is the number to text in if you'd like to comment on any of our stories this afternoon.
7: Afternoons with Joel Reinberger.
8: Who did you used to catch leeches for? There was a laboratory in Mowbray in Launceston and I had a pond near the house that had the swimming tiger leech in it. See flashes of black and yellow in the the dirty water and they'd stick to my gumboots. Now I would dropped them into a fowler jar. When I had enough, I'd sell them for 10 cents each. I thought you were going to tell us a tale of dragging your little sister through a pond. (laughs) But I'm glad it was happier than that.
6: Joel Reinberger
8: on
9: the ABC Listener.
7: Weekdays from 1.30 on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: 27 past 12 news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology, not too far away. But before that, the southeast Queensland bee industry is in lockdown as investigations continue... Into the extent of the Voa Varroa Jacobsoni mite infestation at the Port of Brisbane. While the insect is a different species to the Varroa destructor that has caused mass devastation in New South Wales and Victoria, the Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO, Danny LaFever, says the detection is still significant to the industry.
10: It's just another blow for our industry at the moment, another detection of a pest that we don't want. So we know uh, last week that there was a detection of a single mite in a central hive at the Port of Brisbane, amongst six other central hives. There's been a lot of uh, surveillance around that area, And thankfully, they haven't been able to detect any other mines, which is a good sign to suggest that it might be isolated.
11: When it comes to management, you know, in terms of the Varroa destructor, there's the national management plan in place now. Is the the Jacob Sono being treated in the same way or it'll be looked to be eradicated from that Brisbane port area?
10: Uh, so it will fall under the same process as Viral Destructor in that it falls under the Emergency Plant Pest Response Deed and has a described process with a new detection on what happens. So currently it's in what they call the incident definition phase where they're trying to establish the actual size of the response that's needed. Uh, and if it's beyond the capability of Queensland Department to uh, run that or fund that response, then they'll come to the CCPP with a response plan to look to cost share that.
11: How significant would you say this detection is?
10: Uh, So this is not as significant as rail destructor in in New South Wales. Hopefully it, it is caught early enough. It appears that way at this stage with the single mite being detected. We also know that varroa jacobsoni which is the species detected in brisbane is normally only found on asian honeybees but it has recently been established that it's jumped host in papua new guinea and fiji to european honeybees and the single mite was found in a european honeybee colony so that that is alarming but to date there hasn't been a huge impact from varroa jacobsoni globally uh, on european honeybees
1: Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO Danny Leferve speaking there with Megan Hughes. Coming up in the second half of the program, we'll look at how walnut production is shaping up in the south. Harvest isn't too far away. And we'll also look at okra and figs grown at Richmond. A really lovely story there to bring you. But before that, let's get to the all-important weather forecast. Michael Conway has the details for us at the Bureau of Meteorology. Michael, any rain around the place today?
9: Hey Larissa, uh, there is very little rain to report. The, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, there's a few fall, light falls about the east, so St Patrick's Head and Grey had one millimetre, and they were, about, they were the only significant falls about, and since 9am there have been no other falls about the state.
1: Any on the way?
9: Yes, tonight we should... Uh, expect a few light falls around the state, so mostly around under five millimetres through the whole state. Uh, and it's pretty wide widespread because of the big um, mid-level cloud band coming over us. Uh, there may be thunderstorms, mid-level thunderstorms associated with this cloud band. Uh, it's attached to a, the cloud band is attached to a low that's moving off the southwest coast towards the south um, and not coming over Tassie. But that will because uh, it's going near the southwest coast, they they can could get a bit more south of about Strawn, mostly in unha- uninhabited areas. But um, in the wilderness there, so they could get 10 to 15 millimetres, uh, perhaps with a storm. It'd also be windy tonight with with the. Um, Generally through the state, but especially about elevated areas, um, and there may be some uh, warnings put out for thunderstorms about the Central Plateau. So, um, if you're up there, watch out for that.
1: Are those sort of conditions with the wind um, and humidity going to cause any problems for existing uh, fires?
9: Ah, uh, yeah. Um, it, it will. It, more wind you have, the the more uh, fire. The the more hazardous it is for fires, but I'm not. I, I can't go into detail of that. Sorry.
1: No, that's totally fine. Because I yeah. know that's uh, yeah. Warm warm weather is still around, isn't it? So uh, are we yeah, expecting yeah. some some warmer temps in the coming days?
9: Uh, so after to, after tonight, after the um, trough, will move, there's a trough um, moving through. It will get back to westerlies. Uh, they'll be reasonably dry, um, but not very strong winds. On the weekend, though, we'll get a couple of cold fronts coming through, one on Friday night and the other one um, during Sunday. And especially Sunday, the fire dangers peak a little uh, as we get quite dry air and west to southwesterly winds. Um, but it won't be too hot. It will be uh, to maximum temperatures on the weekend will be in you know, the high teens to around 20 degrees. So, not too hot, but uh, a bit windy on the weekend.
1: And looking further ahead, uh, when's the next uh, system coming through that'll give us some more rain? Because we, we really need a little bit more than a few sprinkles. Yeah,
9: <laughs> yeah uh, unfortunately, except for the West Coast, which over the next week should be getting some moderate uh, light to moderate falls uh, on a lot of days Uh, it'll be um, fairly dry about the state uh, just with minor falls about um, like for instance tonight some light falls about but yeah unfortunately nothing uh, in the on the horizon in in next week.
1: What's happening with coastal waters?
9: Yeah so the out on the water today uh, north to north easterly winds are expected 10 to 20 knots Increasing to 20 to 30 about the far northeast and east in the afternoon, and about the far um, northeast in the evening. Winds becoming north to northwesterly, 10 to 20 knots in the west late. The winds to- today, uh, sorry, tomorrow, north to northwesterly, 20 to 30 knots. Tending west to northwesterly during the day and easing to 15 to 25 knots in the west and central east in the afternoon. So pretty pretty windy time. The swell's about in the west and south today. You've got a southwesterly one and a half to two metres. There's also about the south and east to northeasterly building to one and a half metres. Uh, tomorrow southwesterly one and a half to two and a half metres, building to two and a half to three and a half metres in the evening. And the east northeast it continues at one to two metres in the south. About the north, uh, we've got northeastly both days. Uh, to one metre, and uh, a westerly around 0.5 today and around one tomorrow. In the east, there's a northeasterly building to one to two metres today, so picking up that northeasterly, and then a southerly below one metre. And then tomorrow, the northeasterly builds to one and a half to two and a half metres, and we also have that southerly below one metre, although it's a little higher in the south in the evening.
1: And that's it. Any warnings?
9: Uh, We do. We've got... uh, with the wind coming, there's a pretty extensive warning. Strong warning for the Central Plateau Lakes today and all, all coastal waters except Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. And tomorrow, the strong warning for all coastal waters and for both Central Plateau and South West Lakes.
1: Too easy. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Larissa. Michael Conway there at the Bureau of Meteorology.
0: Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: We've got walnuts and okra ahead for you this uh, in the next 20 minutes, plus uh, livestock reporter Richard Bailey will be along to talk about sheep and lamb prices in Tasmania this week. But before that, let's talk trade because, well, the trade war with China, it's almost over, isn't it? Meetings between government ministers are continuing and officials are telling the ABC that China is readying itself to drop its large tariffs on Australian wine next month, but in the rush to end the trade battle and make it go away, playing down the very real impacts on the Australian economy and to individual farming businesses. Warwick Long spoke to Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan, who's been looking at this today. Absolutely.
5: There are a lot of producers, there are fishes, there are meat processors and there are wine grape growers in particular who are still really hurting from this trade war, um, which started out before or as the COVID pandemic was really spreading. You might think back to uh, 2020 and there was a number of Australian abattoirs um, in Queensland and New South Wales that were the first to be suspended from exporting to China, at the time it was over um, labelling complaints, these abattoirs, they represented something like a third of a trade considered to be worth $3.5 billion. And despite some abattoirs getting back into China uh, last year, these big, heavy-hitting ones are still locked out. And they were really the first cub off the rank um, in this trade war that, that really spread from a lot of... Um, diplomatic tensions that didn't necessarily have to do with uh with primary
3: production what's the government been saying because it it was big on trying to change the relationship but yeah it's been saying that for a long time and not every every tariff is gone as we've just been speaking about with wine yeah
5: that's right and um It's not the same government either. You'll have to recall that we've had a change um, in Canberra and the government has been working to um, restore relations with China, not just the trading relationship, but the diplomatic one as well. And when it comes to trade, we have seen exports that were locked out of China um, since 2020, including barley, coal, timber. Um, I mentioned a few meatworks, including a couple of lamb producers, lamb exporters from Victoria, have been able to get back into China. But this conversation is a long way from over. Um, you've still got tariffs supplying to Australian wine, red wine into China, a trade that was worth $1.2 billion uh, before these tariffs were applied. I think last year Australia sold something like $10 million worth of wine into China. So there's a big uh, difference there. Um and you've also got the lobster fishes. That's a trade worth $700 million before <clears throat> quarantine um, concerns were raised by the Chinese government um, again in 2020. And we haven't seen any rock lobster go into that marketplace since. So uh, you might say that things are headed in the right direction. We know before Anthony Albanese went to China last year, um, I think it was November time, the Australian Trade Um, minister and foreign minister announced that China had agreed to review these tariffs applied to wine. Um, That review was always expected to run until the end of March, which is fast upon us, um, with the Australian government maintaining that if the tariffs aren't removed, it will resume its complaint with the World Trade Organization, which I guess is a bit like the independent umpire.
3: So in terms of the, the impacts then and the fallout from this trade mm-hmm. war, even if tariffs are return, we just heard Paul DiRico saying it'll be years before growers start to, yeah. to feel prices go up as they try and clear a backlog of red wine in particular. Um, has the trade relationship and the market of the pro- this produce being produced in uh, Australia, has this been changed forever?
5: Well, I think you could certainly s- suggest that was... Um, You know, if you talk to wine grape growers, particularly those growing grapes to go into the bulk wine market, they're really hurting at the moment. We've heard about producers receiving the equivalent of 1970s prices. Um, One wine grape grower I met in the South Australian Riverland last year told me um, before China's tariffs, they might receive something like $650 a tonne for Cab Sav or Shiraz grapes. That's more likely to be $120 per tonne this year. That's... That's Talk about a cost of living crisis. How do you pay your irrigation bills, your supermarket bills, your electricity bills? How do you keep your vines alive when the prices are going backwards? And while there's a lot of optimism and hope from the government and the industry that China will remove these tariffs, there's so much wine in the world at the moment. There's an absolute glut, even those who have replaced Australia in the highly valuable Chinese marketplace are not getting the returns that Australia saw. The economy there is slowing and there's just going to be such a backlog that it's going to take a long time and then you've also got the issue of developing trust with customers you know for so long, Australia realised it was putting, um, I guess, a lot of its eggs in the China basket, you might say, and that's because it was getting such high returns. But There's plenty of people that have been caught out by this trade war, um, including those in the barley, timber and coal sectors. And it'll be interesting to see whether they want to go down the path or whether they're uh, perhaps more willing to diversify for a lower value return.
1: As Parliament House reporter Kath Sullivan chatting there to Warwick Long about those interesting nuances with trade negotiations between China and Australia that's set to unfold in the coming months. Uh, the deadline for water sales for the one hundred sixty-five million dollar Tamar Irrigation Scheme closes tomorrow. So Tas Irrigation is putting on an extra drop-in day tomorrow for farmers uh, from nine thirty to eleven thirty at Piper's Brook Fire Station and 1 to 3.30 at the Rowella Hall. That's for the Tamar Irrigation Scheme if you're interested in finding out more about uh, those water sales.
0: Keeping you updated every day. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith.
1: It's shaping up to be a promising walnut harvest in the next few months. Grower Sophie Millick says demand for her walnuts is growing, but the biggest problem is keeping pesky cockatoos out of the crop. Madeleine Rojan dropped in to Coldar Walnuts in Richmond.
12: I try not to count my walnuts before they're cracked shall we say so so we'll wait and see there are things that can still uh, derail us at this point and certainly during harvest we need to have uh, good harvesting conditions so dry weather predominantly and and access to labour and all of those other things that make for a smooth harvest.
13: And I understand that you don't harvest until May but what stage in production are you at? So we're um,
12: heading into our harvest period. We harvest in April, um, so we're about six weeks out at the moment, busily uh, preparing the orchard floor because we harvest up off the ground and um, just making sure that our trees get enough water in that final
13: stage of growing because obviously it's been incredibly dry here. And of course all plants need a lot of water, so how how are they looking? I know unfortunately we saw a couple of ones that have lost a lot of leaves, but... Promising season ahead? Uh, look, we,
12: we're quietly confident. Um, those very wet
13: years over
12: the past two years um, knocked us about a bit. We had some water logging in the orchard, which the trees didn't love. Um, we are incredibly lucky that during dry times we have an irrigation scheme um, and we, we're grateful to everyone who's worked hard to make that a really successful scheme and give us access to water. So um, even though the very dry season like we're having at the moment isn't ideal, we do
13: have irrigation water to keep those trees um, alive and producing well. Is that the main thing that you can do to protect the trees or are there other things that you're really focusing on um, at the moment at this stage of production to get the best out of your walnuts?
12: At this stage of production keeping the cockies off is really important. Um, they've started coming around in the last few weeks and and um, I can see that glint in their eyes um, so uh, it's now is the time when we start using a, a gas gun bird scarer to keep them off and just yeah now that we've got the crop coming on nicely doing everything we can to protect it.
13: Yes I did hear some cockies over in the trees before. How much of a threat are they to the walnuts Uh, well some seasons we've
12: had flocks of around 300 birds and um, they can cause complete devastation if they're not um, picking the nuts off they're, they're pulling the leaves and the shoots off so they're incredibly destructive would you say that that's the worst threat in terms of animals uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's not much else that bothers us too much. And look, we, we're in the environment. Our orchard is a habitat for um, for some birds and animals and, and we accept that we have to share a little bit, but it is tough when you get those enormous
13: flocks of cockies coming in and causing
12: so much damage.
13: So what do you do to keep birds off? I know some people have nets, but I feel like they might be able to break through those. Yeah, look, we can't net
12: um, a walnut orchard, so it's it's really just keeping the cockies moving on by scaring them. Eventually,
13: the walnuts do get to be bird feed, right?
12: That's right. Uh, so when we grade our walnuts, uh, we do have some that come out as the smallest size and... They're very fiddly to open um, and they're not big enough to be sold as, as, you know, premium nuts. Uh, And even our cracking machine doesn't like them very much. So they actually get sold for premium parrot food, um, predominantly to macaw breeders um, in Tassie and also on the Gold
13: Coast. And so that's a big part of your business is minimising food waste, would you say?
12: Yeah, absolutely. We don't want to see anything go to waste. We've worked very hard
13: <laughs> to grow these walnuts.
12: Um, so yeah, the small walnuts go for parrot feed um, any of the seconds, either because they're they're medium size or they're discoloured on the outside of the shell. They go through our cracking plant. Uh, we have the only cracking plant in Tasmania. And then the, the biggest, you know, beautiful, clean uh, walnuts all get sold as pre in shell nuts, and then uh, the walnut shell, when we've, we're done cracking, all goes back on the orchard as a you know an important mulch.
13: So we're doing what we can to make sure that nothing gets wasted through the process. It must be quite rewarding as well to not have much waste. Is the consideration mostly because of the environment, or does it also benefit financial aspects as well? Yeah, look, minimizing
12: waste is is everything. We don't want to waste uh, something that's valuable that could um, contribute to the way we run our business um, in terms of income. But I think it, it it's everything, right? Um, very much uh, environmental concerns are part of that. Uh, but I think generally society needs to be moving to minimise all types of, of wastage
13: and just be more efficient with what we've got. Are there any other plans to make your business more environmentally friendly or, you know, any any... Brainstorming you're doing in that area.
12: We're always working to improve soil health, and um, and always learning and improving our practices in that area. Um, there are parts of the farm where we're trying to regenerate, um, hopefully the the original vegetation that would have been there um, pre farmland. Although it's sometimes hard to know exactly what that would have looked
13: like, so it's it's a total constant work in progress and how is demand for for walnuts in tassie as well We are so
12: lucky we have a very loyal following. I'm getting inquiries. I think I've started my first, my earliest ever um, pre-order list (laughs) that's been going since January. Um, There are a lot of people who, um, because we didn't have a great harvest last year, missed out on walnuts or um, didn't get as many as they would normally um, buy from us. So um, we're really grateful to have those uh, loyal customers and... We generally can't keep up with demand. I think that's any business owner's dream. Yes, absolutely. Although I do hate disappointing people when we run out. <laughs> hopefully hopefully we'll have a great supply this year and no one will miss out.
1: Our reporter, Madeline Rajan there with uh, walnut grower Sophie Millick at Coldar Walnuts in Richmond. Have you ever heard of Okra. The green pods are native to East Africa and used in stews and curries. Afra and Adam Hanady, who run Fresh Flavour Farm, have been cultivating the African vegetable, along with figs and other fruit and veg at their farm in Richmond as well. It's been a journey for them and one that all started with tomatoes.
14: The old man that used to live here, did tomatoes and i think the one before that the previous owners we're talking about 17 18 years ago i don't know how long they had the place for they had tomatoes here as well so we thought well first thing is tomatoes we experiment with figs but was just more of an experimental we saw um, um, i think we saw an interview on um, on the internet done in sydney about hydroponic figs and it was a country type of talk as well, so we thought, okay, that might be a good idea, and that's where it all started.
15: Yeah. Besides, we we would always like to uh, try to live like s- self sufficient, uh, uh, sufficiently, and um, we usually like to make our uh, tomato paste. That's how we thought as well uh, to grow tomato. Like, like gardening, we came from uh, farmer's background. Um, that's all helped us uh, what we... Gave us the headstone. Yeah, yeah, the headstand.
14: So first year was uh, uh, was okay. It was actually wasn't bad. We, had a, bit of, uh, we had a few crops out of it. Uh, and then um, we soon learned that we had to optimize. It was too difficult to do it, especially for... Uh, we, you know, we employed, we work full-time, so it was too difficult to do it manually. You have to do the smart way. Smart farming I guess. Hence we Im- we implant like implemented new automated systems and that helped a lot. Now everything on the phone, we can monitor it, we can see what's going on, we can shut down the system, turn it on, all from the phone. So that helped a lot. Yeah. A s significant difference in terms of workload, yeah.
15: So efficient, yeah. Mm.
11: One of the crops that you're growing is okra, which is something that people might not commonly see at the local market or in the supermarket. Why was that a crop that you wanted to to try out?
14: Uh, (laughs) It's my (laughs) favourite. I love I love okra. I used to hate it when I was a kid. Oh, my goodness. My mum would cook it and I would just get upset about it. Now I love it. I just eat heaps of it. It's very tasty. Uh, It's... A delicacy, if you think about it, a type of food, if you know how to cook it. And uh, we thought we'll do it for ourselves. Now, then we learned more people interested in okra, and some people knew how to cook it, and now we sell a bit of it. So it's, it's working. <laughs> it's good.
11: And
15: what is the best way to cook it?
14: Uh, I'll leave that to I can't speak on behalf <laughs> of <that>. us. <laughs>
15: Um, Actually, uh, many ways, many different ways. If you Google it, you you can find plenty of recipes. My favorites um, are two ways, which is uh, one of them, uh, like, uh, um, it's very simple. Just uh, toss it in the oven, um, roast okra with a bit of salt pepper, and um, that's all. And the other one is, like... um, I do benefit fry it uh, with um, a bit of garlic, tomato paste, and uh, serve it with rice. You were talking about it being quite a manually
11: intensive crop. There's a small window where you have to fertilise the flowers every single day. Can you talk to me about what that process looks like?
15: Only one hour. The, the okra flowers will open for one hour, and we have...
14: A couple of hours. A
15: couple of hours, maybe, yeah we have to make the pollination within those couple of hours and um, unfortunately I'm the bee there so <laughs> 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 I have to uh, go um, pollinate a- every and each flower uh, manually by the brush <laughs> <Using> the <laughs> yeah, voice,
14: uh, yeah yeah In tomatoes mm. we use a pollinator we have a machine that do- looks like an electric tooth uh, brush <laughs> but long and yeah we just walk by the, and that would shake the flowers and that would be enough to pollinate. It's still not easy, still manual work, but it's not too bad for the amount of flowers we have. So, yeah.
11: What tend to be your best-selling products? You've got figs, you've got okra, you've got tomatoes. What are people typically looking for?
15: Uh, I guess figs, they, it's very familiar, people familiar with eating like dried figs, but not fish figs. It is popular. But not as uh, popular as the tomatoes. The tomatoes are so popular. And um, uh, the way we grow our tomatoes um, and uh, the way we choose our variety is uh, like making our our tomatoes like sort of special in taste or does have special taste. And people, seem seems like, uh, loved.
11: And what are the plans for the business going into the future? Have you got anything on the horizon that you're looking at doing or any... Do you have
14: any ideas? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's still experimental. Figs is the way to go. We feel that we're going hidden that way at the moment. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure, but I think we fix. Because we had great feedback from people about the quality of figs we have, we don't spray So everyone getting figs that pesticide's free. That's, I think it's an advantage here because if you have them outside, you may have to spray the way, especially in Tassie where we inside, we don't. We control the whole atmosphere there. And they seem to, as you saw in the greenhouse yourself, you grow, uh, yeah, they grow nicely. Tastes very sweet, so it's good.
1: Afra and Adam Hennady chatting to Meg Whitfield inside their greenhouse at Richmond. Well, it's this time on a Wednesday where we check in with livestock reporter Richard Bailey. Richard, what's going on with cattle markets this week? Hello, Larissa.
8: Um, yesterday we had a few less cattle. We had 195 trade and grown cattle at Prana. Um, market was cheaper right across the board. Um, sort of been happening a little bit that's getting dry and with a few more numbers, uh, Both the big works have got plenty of numbers around them at the moment, so everything's just a little bit cheaper. Um, Most yearling steers made anywhere from 172 to 220 cents a kilo, and heifers 196 to 236 cents. Best grown steers and bullocks made 180 to 240 cents. Now the ones at 220 to 240 cents were bought by local butchers, so the processing price is probably more in that 180 to 200 cents a kilo. Best of the heavy cows were about 40% of the whole yard were cows. So best of the heavy cows were 15 cents cheaper, average 15 cents cheaper, uh, making 160 to 180 cents. Leaner 130 to 148 and very lean D1 and E1 cows, 56 to 140 cents a kilo. A few good heavy bulls, They made a 130 to 140 cents a kilo. And tomorrow we're at the first of the wiener sales is at Parana, 12 o'clock start, AWN kick-off tomorrow, and then we follow through over the next three or four weeks with other sales. But looking forward to tomorrow.
1: Yeah, terrific. And sheep and mutton? Lamb and mutton, uh, I should say.
8: Yeah, lambs, uh, less less lambs, 1,583 lambs almost 1,000 less than last week. I thought the better end of the lambs was just a little bit better. There weren't any extra heavy lambs, but I thought the best of the rest of the lambs, you know, we're on a par with recent weeks, well, fully firm anyway, And then, but the lighter lambs were definitely cheaper, anywhere from sort of $5 to $15 cheaper across the board there. Heavy pens made 152 to $168. Trade lambs, 110 to 145 Processors paid 62 to 94 for light lambs. Light trade lambs over in the uh, restocker yards uh, light trade lambs made ninety to one hundred and six dollars to get that sort of money they've got to be shorn um, thirty four to forty four dollars for light lambs and ten to twelve dollars for very small lambs in the mutton yard twelve hundred and forty mutton, which is a thousand less than last week most sheep improved about anywhere from eight to ten dollars a head um, extra heavy sheep made not, fifty to sixty eight dollars heavy 54 to 62. Medium weights 38 to 68, with a bit of jacket on them, those ones at 68, and light 10 to $36 a head. We also had restockers picking around at the bottom end of the mutton market. Uh, some people must have a little bit of feed here and there, I think.
1: Lovely, Richard. We'll catch up with you again on Friday.
8: Good on you, Laura.